This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. In December 2010, Jody and Hamish McTaggart were looking forward to the chance to sit back and relax for a few days. The family property, Bidji Meyer Station, was in the worst drought on record, and the newlyweds had been working flat out all year just to look after their cattle. So, when news of rain in the forecast came through the Bush Telegraph, the sense of relief and joy was palpable. However, those feelings were to be short-lived, as floodwaters began to exceed anything experienced in the station's 130-year history. What happened next was both catastrophic and the literal definition of a watershed moment. In this episode, both Jodie and Hamish recount their experience of the flood 10 years later. My memory that sticks out most to me is probably swimming those calves from the shearing shed. Um, So we had some potty calves living in a, in a, in a, in the shearing shed, which is, you know, 500 metres away from here or whatever. And, um, that we were hand feeding and, and we, we put them in the shearing shed to keep them out of the, out of the rain. And we were feeding them over there. At that stage, we didn't realise we were going to go into water. And the realisation came that we were going to be flooded. Um, and we thought that the, you know, as the flood water started rising, we had time to walk. I, I just can't quite remember how many calves. It would have been a couple of hundred calves. Yeah, it was two hundred and fifty. Was it two hundred and fifty calves? I know cackers. You know, they're less than sort of ranging between sort of three months to six months old, or even less, probably in some situ. Yeah, probably. You know, yeah, a lot of younger cattle anyway. Probably average three months old calves, twelve, sixteen weeks old calves, and skinny. And we had to a, a very uh, you know a combination of walking slash swimming them, you know, as far as sort of five or six hundred meters across to the cottage, and um, you know the I, I suppose the whole I've never been of the station never going underwater before, and, and having to move those cattle to higher ground um, was a was a pretty um, was was probably the most hectic. I reckon, and shifting across to that house, shifting out of the main homestead where we're sitting now and shifting across to that house, which as this was starting to go underwater and then, and then getting them across there, uh, which was a pretty, pretty big effort. I reckon, you know, it was, um, all, all happening and we didn't have a lot of sunlight left of the day and we had to get ourselves organized for as we weren't sure how high the floodwaters were going to get. So we, we had to get ourselves organized to the point where we were going to be safe for the night. Got the calves there. I think we fed the calves. Didn't we? we had to feed feed those calves over there, and got ourselves started getting ourselves set up over at that house. At that stage, we didn't think that house was going under, underwater. As, as it turned out, it did go underwater, which we ended up on the roof of that house. Um, and I think it was 
I think that was probably the most hectic part. My, my father landing an aeroplane, it was, that was pretty, it was pretty amazing. He landed an aeroplane on a very, very small piece of ground that was, had water all around him. The airstrip had gone underwater. So that is just one memory of one of the, one of the many events of 2010 at Bijimaya Station. And we're going to get, uh, back to that part of the year, uh, in a short while on this episode. But I'd like to start off by going back a few months when you had a happier event on the station. Yeah, we got married in September 2010. So just three short months before the flood. Um, yeah, so that was a pretty amazing time for us and, um, lots of guests and lots of festivities. It went on for a couple of days by memory, that wedding. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really. We were, and we were married at Bidjimai. We were married on the lawn at Bidjimai. There used to be a deck, a timber deck, um, out off, off the lawn overlooking the river, which was lost in the flood. Um, but yeah, that was probably the last hurrah for, for Bidjimai as we knew it at that stage. And certainly for, for Jane and Lockie Hamish's parents, um, the last of a long line of, um, of entertaining on the lawn here and on the deck. Um, but yeah, certainly one to remember. How big of an event are we talking? Oh, um, there was, oh, I think there was a couple hundred people there, wasn't there? I yeah, think there was 180 people. Yeah, something like that. I was, you know, and it was a, uh, um, none of my, uh, sisters and, and uh, that's, you know, Jody's brother and sister. It was the sort of first marriage in the family, pretty well out of nearly my whole family, I think. Yeah, on um, both sides. On both sides. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of excitement and, uh, as there is with you know weddings and um, uh, and it was a uh, uh, it was great it was an awesome day. The place was really well set up at the time. Um, Jane and Lockie used to have a station stay here, so it was quite easy to accommodate. Like a lot of the people that came, a lot of the guests were able to have a bed and a shower. And I think there were like fifty made up beds at the time at Bijumai. So yeah, whoever could, didn't get a bed and an air conditioner just brought swags and arrived at least a day before. Um, and then, yeah, we had a bit of a quite a day the day after on the Sunday. Yeah, so most people were here for the weekend. And can you tell me a little bit about Bijimaya Station and where we are? Uh, Bijimaya is a cattle station in um, a couple of hundred k's east of a town called Carnarvon in the northwest of Western Australia uh, and 10 k's east of a little town called Gascoigne Junction. And... Um, in the shore of Upper Gascoigne, uh, it's a one and a half million acre uh, cattle station um, on the bank of the banks of the Gascoigne River. And so the wedding was in September, and was that still at a time of year where you were working cattle? Yeah, well, it, w- it was a very dry year, twenty ten, and we and we basically started mustering straight straight after the wedding. I, I think within a, it must have been within a week of. Start of the wedding, I reckon we would have been mustering. Yeah, we? yeah pretty well the Honda honeymoon. Yeah, as it was known at the time, <laughs> the Honda honeymoon. Yeah, and we just went mustering. Yeah, straight away. Uh, you know, within. I, I I remember it as days, but if I went back and had a look at my diaries, I'd, yeah, we, we we would have we would have um we would have got married. Uh, it was a, yeah, there was you know there's definitely people still here. You know, still having a good time and helping pack up for, you know, two or three days afterwards. Um, people would have gone home. We would have, within a few days of that, we would have been ready to muster and we would have been mustering pretty quickly after that, I reckon. And, uh, you know, in the first, um, certainly in the first half of, of September, we would have been mustering and, yeah, ready to get into it. And Jody and I were both went mustering straight away with the, with the gang. Yeah. You were on a motorbike and so was I and away we went. Jody, we mustered Bijimai, yeah. Did you ever imagine, Jody, that as a new bride you would be having a Honda honeymoon? Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> I knew well, that. You did. <laughs> I knew that was on the cards. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um, I, yeah, I was pretty happy with that actually. So I'd moved to Bijimai like the weekend of the wedding. You didn't live here before. I didn't live here before. Wow, we'd never, no, lived, we'd never lived together. Oh, you guys are brave. <laughs> Had you mustered together? No, though? never handled cattle before. 
together. You married someone and you'd never worked in a set of yards together no. or mustard cattle together. No, but look, we've stood this, we've stood the test of Talk time. Talk about blind <laughs> faith. Oh my gosh. How long, uh, how long would we, had we been together? 12 months? No. 12 or 18 months? Two years. A couple of years? A couple of years or something, yeah. Wow. That is brave. Yeah. But yeah, 10, what, 10 years down the track, 11 years down the track, still here. Still here. But yeah, yeah so you, you knew that. Yeah. What a way to, um, I think like you hear stories of people going on honeymoons and being, and you know, maybe that's the most time they've spent alone with their partner or moving in afterwards, but you moved in and had to do cattle work within mm. a week of the wedding. So you really, it was a crash course of finding out what you guys were getting yourselves in for. Yeah. At the end of a drought. So no, it was a, a weird, a weird time. I mean, where it was a siege mentality by then anyway. So I mean, the back, so the previous two years, Leading up to all this was um, the worst drought that the that the this this country had ever seen. Yeah, I, um, I was just looking back through the rainfall records just before this podcast. I, I just can't quite remember off the top of my head, but it's something like in the previous sort of thirty months leading up to our wedding, I think we'd had sort of one hundred and ten or twenty mils or something of rain. It was yeah, it's nearly three years of. 50 millimetre rainfall, which is, uh, yeah, so it was very, very, very dry. We're in um, really light cattle. Um, and uh, we'd been mustering um, together at Moolu leading up to then, which is where Jody grew up on. And it was just, it was just a, uh, a very, a pretty stressful, you know, nasty time to be on a, on a station. And um, anyway, and, there was there wasn't any nor- there wasn't anything normal about that time at all, and we were both pretty young, yeah, we early to late twenties, and just um, jumped in the deep end. But it yeah, was the, better to get a you know it was more realistic probably than going to Fiji or or somewhere for a honeymoon, and um, yeah, we just got all that stuff ironed out nice and early. <laughs> yeah, it was. There's nothing. There's nothing about that time that wasn't any normal. Everything was the deep ends. So like getting married and shifting into a house and it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just fitted in. It was just happening, all happening at a time where nothing really made sense anyway. So you just, we were just doing the, everybody was just doing the best they could at the time. Yeah. And, um, oh, still a very happy time, but, uh, yeah. And then, so we were married and went mustering. It was horrible that he, Time to go mustering the cattle were really light. We we're just, you know, we're, yeah, once again, that sort of siege, bloody bunker, bloody mentality. We we're just mustering really light cattle. It was really hot. Um, we'd finished mustering Bidjimaya, um, and we fed thousands of calves. I think it's fair to say, pulled every calf, pulled every single calf, every, every calf off every breeder cow, uh, feeding cattle. Um, in paddocks, um, adjusted cattle as well. Adjusted took cattle. cattle um, we actually took cattle off the entire stretch of river. Coincidentally, that went underwater the worst. Yeah. So we destocked that area prior to the flood. We're feed, feeding them and feeding cattle in, in different paddocks. We were mastering. We'd finished mastering. We would went to. I went to Mulu Down Station and muster, gave Jody's parents a hand to muster there for. Couple of weeks, I can never remember it being so hot and bloody horrible. Um, and then, literally, I don't know. We must have, I must have come back the day it started raining. Yeah, you'd you'd come back about four or five days before that. Just didn't quite see out the Morley stuff to get unpack the wedding unpack presents. wedding like presents. We hadn't lived in our home. We'd yeah. been out in the camp. Um, yeah, I, I can clearly remember you. I was um, I was in the old office, which is the schoolroom now. Um, I was in there having a chat to Lockie Hamish's dad, and I clearly remember you driving past in a ute with a motorbike on the back, and the car was covered in mud. Yeah, so, which was an, a rare, a, a rare thing during that time to we, see mud on a car. And we'd been building. So in the meantime, everybody was just the the hills were alive with stories about this rain that was coming, and there could have been like a couple of hundred mils of rain before Christmas, and everybody was just beside themselves with excitement. And I drove back through. That rain as it started after, and I was buggered, like just been mustering for like three months straight. It was, you know, it was a really, 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 really hard time, the hardest my life's ever been. And then we came, came back, it started raining, just didn't stop raining. I'll, I'll never forget the, how hard it rained. And it rained for pretty well a day and a half or 
couple of days straight. I think we ended up with 250 millimetres of rain, I think, that following day, which is like a year's worth of rainfall for us normally in a day. Um, Mooloo Downs and Weed Arrow, the places upstream from us, there's talk of those guys getting five or 600 mils of rain in that same amount of time. Um, no one really knows because the rain gauges all went underwater and stuff. Do you remember the um, celebrating the first 60 mils? Yeah. In the old kitchen, which is now gone. So we, from the flood, the flood knocked it down. So we, the, the elation of getting that rain was just, you know, we, you know, we all drank champagne that night. Yeah, we had a, we'd we had some verve left over from the wedding. We'd kept these cattle alive. You know, there's some, a lot of pride and, you know, it just felt like relief. Relief. We'd beaten the world real. You know, we just, we won the war and then, um, and then the news started rolling in from further upstream with Jody's parents at Mooloo Down Station and Weed Arrow that that they were starting to go underwater. Then that's where the that's where the you know the really bad rain fell or wonderful rain, but you know that's where the really severe rain fell. Um, they they were starting to take shelter and get out of flood water and get on roofs and stuff. At that stage, we'd lost contact with them. All the phones we lost all phone you know we weren't sure if they were safe or not. This is all happening on the on the eighteenth now, so yeah, on December the eighteenth, and um, Bidjamar had never been underwater, so the homestead has been here since eighteen eighty, never been underwater, so we didn't really feel like. Whereas those stations had, so at that stage we hadn't really didn't really think that we we knew there was going to be a big river, but at that stage we were still just you know glowing. We woke up the next day had. Like a really nice breakfast. Yeah, the river was a banker. Yeah, big river. Yeah. But we weren't all that worried. But yeah, it's sort of soon started dawning on us that we were in trouble. And uh, Lockie, my father, went for a fly, got the aeroplane up somehow, didn't see him take off. There mustn't have been any water on the strip at that stage. Or did he take, I can't remember where, how he took off. Went, had a look, and flew upstream and just saw how much water was there. And he, like, yeah, the writing was on the wall, it's trouble. So, Birchimire, how long has it been in your family for? Uh, my grandfather bought it in 1947. Okay. And then, uh, so you said 1880? Yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was established as a station in 1880. And so you've had pretty good records, I suppose, especially within your family's, uh, time looking after the, this country, but before that as well. So you know, you knew the, the river had never flooded to the extent that the infrastructure had gone under before. Oh, there's there's really good rainfall records that go right back to the 1880s, bar a year or two, I think, in the Depression. There was just a year or two got lost there. But the, the homestead has never been – the Bidjimai homestead has never been underwater. And is this what we're sitting in today? Right, is this right. part of – like this is like the 1880? Yeah. Oh, the, the, this actual physical building that we're sitting in isn't, but the ones next door to oh, this. Is, yes. This has been built more recently, the building that we're in here now. But yeah, this, this house had never been underwater. The local Aboriginal people, when they were building this homestead at the start, they told, they told them to build the house here because it doesn't, this is exact spot doesn't go underwater. And so who made that phone call when you're there with champagne? And I suppose that's the moment you get a phone call with the news that you're like, this rain is amazing to, oh shit. Um, or was it not until I, I, really your dad went for a fly? Oh, I think. Um, oh, look, it, it was a little while ago, so it's just a bit hard to remember the exact moment. But, I mean, my father, who, you know, is um, pretty close to 70 years old now and has lived most of his life here, I mean, you sort of, when you, you, you take a fair, you know, you're looking for cues from him a bit. I mean, he, um, he, we, none of us at that stage knew, had, or thought, or were worried about going underwater. Um, uh, uh, until, until he, until he went for that fly, I think, um, and, and physically saw with his own eyes in an aeroplane where the water had got to, or where the, where the water upstream had got to, I think we, we knew then that we, that there was a chance that we could go underwater. It was about all that, it was about all that there was. At that stage, the river had, broken its banks and was in the house, um, which was, you know, which which was higher than it had ever been before. But but to, to know that it was going to get higher from that, we, 
we realised probably by, I'd say about lunchtime the, on the 18th, I'm pretty sure it's the 18th, I'm reasonably sure it's the 18th, or, oh, sorry, the 19th that would have been by that stage. We, we then, I think, when Lockie landed that aeroplane, and by that time we'd have probably swum those calves across and we were ch- trying to make decisions about what to do next, if I've got this right, we then were worried about our safety and health and, like, we just thought, how big is this going to get? If this is – if it hasn't stopped now, then where are we getting to? So we yeah, – yeah, yeah, I reckon up until lunchtime – Everybody just kept thinking there were only four of us on the station, Hamish, myself, Jane and Lockie, which is unusual, plus however many dogs, six dogs or something. Um, I think we just kept telling ourselves up until lunchtime probably this is probably about as big as it's going to get. Like it can't get much bigger than this. It stopped raining. Um, it, it probably can't get much bigger than this. We knew how much water had been through the Mooloo Downs homestead and the Weed Arrow homestead. Um, but, yeah, just nothing really prepared us for how much more was yet to come until uh, Lockie went for that fly and I think that was the moment that the penny dropped and we realised that we needed to evacuate this homestead, go to the cottage, which is probably 150 metres away from here, significantly higher, Um, and, yeah, just start going into planning slash survival mode, not only for us but the the calves first um, and then any other animals that we had. And then there were a couple of more moments after that, um, after that first realisation where we realised it was, again, worse and worse and worse up until it finally peaked at about 2.30 in the morning and started receding. But, um, yeah, one of the moments I remember is, is the calves, swimming the calves across what was then the airstrip. Um, Lockie had taken off that sort of mid-morning, gone for a fly, realised how bad it was, had had done a check on the, you know, the people that were living at the Weed Arrow homestead uh, we didn't have any contact with them at the start. Oh, he but actually flew up there, did he? Yeah. He flew up and, and um, actually got eyes on Des and Zara, the couple that were li- living there, and they sort of gave him a thumbs up. They'd had to move out of the homestead and were in the, like, um, camping on the back of a ute in the workshop. And um, I think he'd done um, a welfare check on my parents at Mulu, who actually their phone was working. So um, they alerted us. They were the ones that alerted us to the fact because – they all went underwater the night before, the night that we were drinking the champagne. They were, unbeknownst to us, uh, being flooded. You know, they had two or three foot gushing through their windows. Um, so, yeah, they they sort of told us the next morning. But, um, yeah, once Lockie landed, we were – Hamish and I were in the process of swimming these cattle uh, – these calves across what was the airstrip that morning when we woke up. Um, so it was a running river. Yeah, so he must have taken off on an airstrip and then it was underwater when he He got back. He took off on the airstrip and it was fine, albeit wet from the rain that we'd had. But by the time he got back from that flight, that airstrip was was a river and we were literally swimming 250 calves over it. And Lockie had a moment where he had to either land land this aircraft immediately on the windrow of the airstrip or risk not being able to land there at all and land in Gascoigne Junction and leave the three of us here in the flood. So, um, so yeah, Lockie, Lockie landed this aircraft on the windrow while we were swimming the cattle. The calves I remember the that street. clearly. It was crazy. Yeah. Oh, that so was, that, no, that was hectic. Can you describe what a windrow is and what the significance of landing on that is? Oh, it's just, it was just the edge of the, it was just the edge of, of the airstrip, which is just totally unsuitable for landing an aeroplane on. But he, um, and we've got a, a small, you know, short takeoff and landing aircraft that was capable of doing it. And it was a pretty amazing, you know, sort of feat of flying actually. Um, uh, he, um, but he landed in a, on a, in, in the scrub, in a short piece of scrub. Um, you know, with a fair few trees and things flicking down the side. Lockie mu- did make, must have made the decision. I wouldn't have landed an aeroplane there. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have landed an aeroplane there. I mean, now I might have, but I certainly at the time I was remember thinking, what the bloody hell was he doing? He wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, or he made that he wasn't willing to. Yeah, he he has landed in a place that was very unsafe, as opposed to trying to land an aeroplane where it was could have been safe in Gascoigne Junction, but he wouldn't have been, which is ten k's away on the wrong side of flood water, so he wouldn't have been able to get here. So he he landed the aeroplane where he could, which wasn't much. You know, he probably landed that aeroplane in 20 metres. 
Do you think he was landing that, well, obviously not wanting to leave you and his wife alone, but was at that point with the water still rising and what he'd just seen from flying, do you think he, like, was there a good chance that that plane was going to go underwater? In unprecedented times, you never genuinely know where it's where it's going to get to. Like, we, we at that stage, no one, no, you, you just don't know. When something like that's happening, there's no limit to, I mean, that night, I mean, so the, the peak of that, we went to, the peak of that flood got to, it was about 2.30 or 3.00, I remember it being about 3 o'clock in the morning and we were, we'd had swag, we put swags up on the roof of the cottage, which was the highest point we could get to, with dogs, it was still raining, um, we'd had something to eat. Um, and we were, we were sitting on the roof of a house of the highest point on that, of that station that we could have. And that, the water kept rising for about seven or eight hours after that and, and probably ro- ro- rose another two meters, um, uh, you know, higher than it's ever been before. Um, flood waters going out, you know, five to six miles out of the banks of the river. Um, that, that water continued to rise, um, to, um, at, at, till three o'clock in the morning and f- when it stalled and then eventually started to go down again i was worried that we were going to die um because you just don't know how much higher it's going to get you know is this house going to is this house going to um you know get swept away and are we going to die i mean that's when it when it stopped and it stopped in the one place in a, one specific spot for a fair while um, on a fence and watched it and watched it and watched it and started to go down again. The relief was just, yeah, it was just a, and then it actually went down really quickly. It, it, you know, it actually went down really quickly and the relief of knowing that we we're all going to be safe was, yeah, it was obviously a pretty good feeling. It was so, it was so surreal and everything had moved past any, anyone's expectations of how big it was going to get, that it was like all bets off the table. Yeah. It was anything can happen here now. Um, it was so far removed from anything that any of us believed could have happened already that, yeah, it was it was pretty. And straight after the elation of having the rain. And yeah, it was a big 24 <laughs> hours. Yeah, we like it was, yeah, it was a, a unique experience, um, a, a really unique experience of elation to horror and uh, yeah, a lot of emotions there. Those 250 calves that we'd swept to that house, they, you know, they all got swept away. We had horses. Well, the um, calves. You know, it's pretty, yeah, pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty moments in amongst all that. Yeah. yeah, that's probably the the low point that sticks out in my mind of the flood is just before the sunset. We had these calves on the lawn at the cottage, and the the water was rising and they were knee-deep in the water. 250 calves are a fair few calves, actually. That's quite a lot. <laughs> um, just behind the cottage where the, um, you know, in the direction of the water, there was a there was a holding paddock fence and um, we were making decisions at that point about what we were going to do for our safety. In the meantime, we had these calves inside a paddock, sorry, inside a, um, the house yard of the cottage, so at our feet more or less, and um, we decided that we would put them into the – no, sorry, just before that, they sort of started to it the water got deep enough that they were getting swept away a bit. And Hamish, I remember Hamish and Lockie, I clearly remember it. I remember them wading out into the water. Um, because half these calves were tame. They were pets. So they'd try you know, they were trying to swim and they were trying to come back to us. Um, so I remember Hamish and Lockie going out and cutting the fence so that anything that got swept away had a chance of I don't know, finding something. And just on that it was amazing how many actually survived and came back. I don't know where they went. But um, the real pet ones, there were about 20 of them, and they kept trying to swim back. And I remember Hamish and Lockie wading out into this water and grabbing them and carrying them back, and they put them inside the cottage. They put them in the house. Yeah, so there were 20 of them because at least then they were out of the current and they had a chance of standing on some furniture or, or something. Um, and, yeah, half of them survived. So that was. I patted one yesterday. Yeah, did you yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. And and out of those other ones that you know that were swept away, like I said, it was incredible how many came back, staggered back over the course of the next six, twelve months. You'd see them. I don't know where they went. Must have found a bit of high country somewhere. 
But um, yeah, that was that was the moment that sticks out in my mind of those, and it was just before the sunset. Um, and watching those blokes wade out and bring these bloody poor sick calves back and stick them inside the house that we just renovated. <laughs> we just renovated, finished renovating before the um before the wedding. Yeah, you must have felt utterly helpless at that point in time. Completely. Uh, yeah. For for the calves, I mean. Oh yeah, sure. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, yeah, bloody horrible. But um, yeah, I I was um I remember being pretty emotional. Um, I mean, at that stage, uh, at that stage, so phones go out. There's no communications. Um, I think we had a sat phone. Um, I remember uh, talking to my grandmother the next day, and I mean, she was by then people were. Like really worried, you know. Uh, people were really worried. We, um, I remember talking to my grandmother the next day, and yeah, finding that really hard, you know. Um, we were telling her we were safe, but yeah, it was a pretty nasty time. And then a helicopter came and grabbed us the next day. So we were. There's a guy called Richard, who, um, you know, Lockie. I think Lockie had made that call. Caught, spoke to a guy called Richard. <laughs> And um, he's just like, come and get us in the morning, you know, come get get us out of here. Um, and, yeah, that helicopter turned up. Must have been pretty quick the next morning. Yeah, I remember getting must down off like the daylight. Must have been like five. daylight. Yeah, it was, it was like, you know, it was um, really hot, uh, really humid. Um, we, we were just keen to get out of there, obviously, and get on a bit of dry ground and not really knowing what the future held there as well. Like, is it... Um, is it going to come up again or, you know, you just, you don't know if it's rained again or it had been raining on and off. And so we, um, we flew to Gascoigne Junction. The helicopter came, landed as an R44 helicopter, came and grabbed us and a heap of dogs. Mm. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> heap of dogs. Got these calves out of the house. Yeah. Actually, Richard brought with him antibiotics and milk powder. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, to give these calves a fair. Yeah. I don't remember that. And. We all went to Gascoigne Junction and just yeah. shell shocked. Just, as- she- just shell shocked. I've seen photos of us yeah. that following day, and oh god, it was pretty pretty rough. But as but- well as the like, there were some really funny moments that we talk about. It wasn't it wasn't funny, but we can look back now. Like there were some moments that were just so ridiculous. There were some crazy decisions being made. I remember there was um, your mum had been to Europe for a trip, and she brought me home that cushion right behind you with the dash hounds on it. And um, it floated past us on the tanks at one stage and Hamish actually jumped off the tank and got it, um, picked this bloody pillow up off the floodwaters. There was a carton of Coke that floated past Jane and Lockie's tank. We were on a tank each. It floated past Jane and Lockie's tank and Lockie thought it would be a great idea to grab this carton and put it up on the tank just, you know, to have throughout the night. And in the process just, I don't know, there must have been 10 litres of water inside this carton and it wet every you know every piece of bedding that they had the only dry thing that we'd taken up onto the tanks the dogs had a fight in the middle of the night remember that not really (laughs) dogs were all bluing um i've got photos of jane so i remember Lockie walking around as the flood waters were rising and he was just taking videos he must have hours of of footage of um, of the flood wars rising here at the homestead and i was going around taking photos and i've got photos of jane standing in um, in the men's dining room where the deep freeze was and there's a clock behind her, it's 9.30 in the morning and she's standing knee-deep in water with a, with a floating freezer getting meat out for the night, you know, getting some meat out to defrost for dinner. We're all hungover. We're, yeah, hungover yeah. from the celebrations from the, from the night before. Um, yeah, there's like just – Absolutely the, surreal, isn't it? Surreal. surreal. Yeah. yeah, and the things that we took up onto the top of the tank – you know, in the yeah, yeah. What's in your grab list? Like when you realise, well, I'm I'm guessing your first priority is getting your your animals to safety. Yeah, like knowing you guys or any pastoralists, but then you've got a bit of a probably a go bag. You know, your sentimental items or what? What can no, we put? No, was it too late really. at that point? There's really, no, well, nothing. It, it all it all happened pretty slowly. We put some things up high, which didn't go underwater. Um, definitely things that didn't go underwater that we got on top of cupboards and stuff. So. Uh, the building that we're in now, my mother and father, they've lost everything, you know. Um, the, the, luckily enough for my mother, she, I mean, yeah, once again, the decisions that are getting made aren't world class at, 
at times, but she she got really lucky. She threw a heap of things on the top of a double bed of her double bed to try and keep them out of the flood water, which at that time though I think it was only going to be like ankle height. And the the bed actually floated to the roof, and nothing, and then went back down again with the flood water, and nothing on the bed actually got wet. So she got kind of pretty lucky like that. Um, no, we didn't. I don't know. I, I don't know. There was other. There was just other. Like once again, there's just animals that needed looking after. That took a lot of our time. We must have got like maybe um, some passports and wallets and stuff. I don't know. I, I can't. Well, yeah, I can't so remember. I, I, can I can't remember, remember really trying them. to save too much. All of these wedding presents that I don't even think we'd even opened yet. Or you know, half. half no, they they actually made it through because we hadn't really had much time to unpack because we went mustering. A lot of our wedding presents were in these big clear tubs on top of beds and the beds floated. So that's a tip for anyone living on the river, a river, is ensemble beds will float but beds on a frame won't. So all of our beds are ensemble beds now. So that so that's like a box spring. Yeah, is that what you mean? Like with yeah. the box, like a base. Yeah, on wheels. Yeah, like a full base on wheels with the mattress on top. That is all a handy the, tip. Yeah, yep. Um, but the, yeah, what the grab list? So on top of the tank, on top of the roof that night, we had four dogs, two pe- four four people, a frozen lasagna that got rained on all night, a cotty's bottle of cordial bottle full of water. And a carton of cigarettes, and that was it. And a sat phone. Priorities. That was the lot. That's the pretty important things, though. Yeah. You'll stay hydrated. Yeah. You'll have a stress outlet and communication. <laughs> That's it. We were sorted. And what? it wasn't wasn't really like – it wasn't like anything that you could take up there because we're outdoors and it was still, like, raining and, and stuff, and everything that was up there would have got wet and wrecked and stuff anyway. So it was just – no, really, I, I think at that – at that stage, you're not making like brilliant decisions. Really, all you do, like, you you shake your head at some of the things that you would that you did then now. But you're not when you're under stress like that. You're not really making great decisions. And you, um, we got on the roof, and we were just hopeful, hoping to get some sleep. And we had something to eat, and we had something to drink. And after that, we just sort of was. <laughs> weren't really thinking at all your head's just a your head's just a mess and um try and have as good a sleep as you can in the rain in a swag with like flood water all around you and a fair few dogs camped in your swag with you <laughs> it was kind of about as good as we did i think we tried to go to sleep i think we i must have must have just actually like laid down hoping it was a nightmare that you yeah. wake up from and then um like waking up quite a lot during the night really watching how high the water was going to get and we had a couple of horses too at, the, at that stage. They were good, yeah. Yeah, they, they stood with us all night, right, right close to us. Yeah, they disappeared um, for about half an hour around the time that the that the waters peaked, which was a bit scary. Um, it was a full moon that night; you could see everything when there was no clouds about in between storms. Um, but yeah, they disappeared. They must have wandered off behind it, um, the garage, I think, to get out of the to get out of the current for a little while, and then they reappeared. An hour or so later. So, but yeah, they stuck really close to us all night. So it was a fair bit of watching them throughout the night. What's the conversation like when you're, I mean, you said before, Hamish, that it was a terrifying couple of hours or several hours up there. You didn't know what was going to happen if you guys were going to make it out. You know, what kind of, do you, do you have these deep and meaningful conversations or are you trying to tell jokes to lighten the mood? No, just, pretty quiet i think well we're just trying to sleep and i don't know i might have just mumbled something about the you know the the waters stopped coming up or i i don't i don't remember a lot i remember being awake a lot that that sensation of um of uh like of when something really really bad's happened in your life and you you wake up and you think oh thank god that was all a dream and then you're like oh no no or nightmare no no it's actually still this is actually happening but no, there was nothing. Everybody was pretty quiet. Like I think, I think Mum and Dad had a pretty decent blue over on their, <laughs> over on their tank. I think and dogs mucking around and yeah, no, there wasn't much came out of that. wasn't much, wasn't anything interesting came out of that night. I don't think, and not a lot of, not really a lot of sleep. Just trying to grab a little bit of sleep here and there. I was we were pretty like in wet swags and sort of and stinking hot. You know, like really, you know, really, really hot, yeah. steamy, sultry you know, sweaty sort of weather and 
yeah, wasn't. Well, I've had better nights sleep, so. But I guess we were all aware. All four of us were fully aware of the change that had occurred in that twenty-four hours. That nothing was going to be the same at Bijimar again. I think, or for for anyone's lives for for a little while. You know, the the fact that we were up on top of those that tank, um, that roof, and it was water as far as the eye could see, and it was an unprecedented event event that. It, you know, no one had ever expected. I think uh, we all, it wasn't spoken about. We couldn't speak to each other anyway. We're on opposite ends of, of the roof. But I think there was just that underlying knowledge between all four of us that this was, there was this major change and what was it all going to look like come daylight and for the next however many years. Yeah, I, I know Lockie had been really trying to um, alert people in Carnarvon to what was going on. So there was like by, by then there was some there was some news starting to filter through to Carnarvon, which is downstream from us, and Gascoigne Junction, but they're only ten k's away, so it was sort of like instantaneous what was happening to us. It was happening to them. There was a very similar story going on in Gascoigne Junction. You know, people going underwater and you know sort of pretty nasty there as well. Um, but um, Carnarvon was, uh, you know, it was a day and Dilwara, you know, where you just were um, yesterday. And Carnarvon, you know, where there's thousands of people that live on that river, they were pretty, obviously pretty keen to find out what was going on. And um, so Lockie was, like, uh, talking to people a lot. Once we sort of, like, lost communications with people, that would have still been a bit of a mystery to them, I reckon. But, um, and I, I was, I was, um, I've only just remembered this, but I, I'd, was uh, wrestling with the fact that I reckon that that stage we you know just spent months you know trying to save the life of these skinny cattle, um, and I was you know pretty sure that we'd you know drown the best part of five thousand cows I reckon on this station, which turned out to not be the case. There's a lot of cattle survived. We did did drown a, a lot that were locked up in yards and paddocks and things. Unfortunately, it was it was pretty hard to it was pretty hard to grapple with at the time. We 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 weren't to know we didn't we didn't know but that was it ended up being a lot better than what I thought at the time but yeah it was a, that was that was another thought sort of roaring through my head but we'd um, we drowned a big heap of cattle which as a you know cattle people wasn't sitting all that well with us uh, obviously um, and that's kind of about all of my memories from that event and then just the subsequent cleanups and. Yeah. The weeks and months, you know, Richard's we lived in Gascoigne Junction to, for, yeah. we lived in, we could only fly in and out. We lived in Gascoigne Junction from that point forward in a big shared house with however floor. many people were camped in that house. There <laughs> would have been 15 or 20 of us in that house, I reckon. And Richard, uh, the chopper pilot stuck with us and he just flew back here every day with us. And I clearly remember none of us had any shoes, water bottles, hats, nothing, no shovels. But I do remember the three of us, Richard, Hamish and I, we started at the cottage first as a bit of a base to kick off from, um, no access via roads. And, um, yeah, the three of us shoveling mud out of that house in the first, um, couple of days. There's no power, water, food, clothes, boots, shovels, machinery, machinery, heat and mud and your hands is about all you got. Bloody calves, like yeah, there was <laughs> these, these leftover, these leftover calves, and it just it was absolute, absolute chaos. But it t- it didn't take long before there was just teams of people here to give us a hand. Well, um, we slept, we slept at that house on the lawn in some horrible, it must have been a bed or some description or a swag. I think it was at Christmas Eve. Uh, well, no, it was, it, was it was Christmas, Christmas Eve. Eve. Well, the, that was the good thing about being flooded in December, I guess, is that things dried out pretty quickly. <laughs> so we, we did sleep on a bed. We slept on a bed out on the lawn in Christmas on Christmas Eve, I think. And then pretty shortly after that, there must have been a bit of road access back here to Bijamar, which is not far, it's only like 10 k's, but... Must have been able by well, New Year's Eve was also a bit of a turning point too, wasn't it? We had it? New Year's Eve here, yeah. And then, and then you find out, you know, like the people that came to help us get like back in order was that was just unbelievable. I'm not really. I still think of people that came to help and they came from everywhere, from far and wide, strangers, family, people that we've known for a long time. They brought food, machinery, water, shoes, clothes. Um, cars, yeah, vehicles, 
fridges, freezers, generators, their skills as electricians or plumbers, like it was just it, it, every day there were several people arriving with, with new things and new skills and extension cords. So happy to help. Yeah. Like family, friends. That went on for months. Yes. Yeah. Went I- on for months initially. Like was, there was just like large groups of people. Yeah. You don't have it. Like there's no machinery. Like there's, you've, you literally start with nothing. Um, we had no money. So we just had no money. Um, all of our cars all went underwater. We got like a, a, a lot of money from um, the Lord Mayor's appeal, if yep. you remember. That was yep. like, so none of us had any money to buy bloody food for start. Like, everybody's broke. So, um, yeah, you lose all, yeah, all of our, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have a car, clothes. Luckily, the one thing is we never had any kids at that stage, I suppose. Yeah. So there's no, it would have been, I don't know how you would have done it if you had little kids. So you just start from the, start from the, start the, from the start. Yeah, start right back from the start. And, um, yeah, amazing, you know, amazing people that, yeah, come to help and never really stopped helping, to be honest. And, but, uh, um, and, you know, it really, um, it started to feel something like normal, probably as much as probably five, four or five years afterwards, I dare say. Mm. I'd reckon it's probably a pretty fair, fair call. Certainly the first. Probably two years, would you say, after the flood, almost every day was dedicated to flood recovery of some description. You know, vehicles that needed fixing or fences that needed standing up, roads that needed repairing, infrastructure replacing, bloody furniture to be pressure washed, swimming pools to be emptied. It went on for a couple of years. That was our sole focus. The freaking cattle work that had to take place afterwards, you know. Obviously, the cattle are still, you know, they're all... Still doing their thing. You've got to still try and look after them as best you can. Um, Luckily, yeah. it kept raining. It did, yeah. It, def- it did. It did. The next year or two after that was pretty good. But, yeah, that was a, um, uh, you know, it was a, 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 probably the thing. We were young and, like, we really had nothing anyway, to be honest. I mean, it was pretty pretty nasty, bloody event. But, um yeah, my mother and father, I think it's, they wouldn't mind me saying it, hit them pretty hard. Like this Vigimile was their life, it was their station, which lucky Jody and I have been lucky enough to, you know, be able to, um, you know, buy the place off them in the meantime. But it was their station at that point. Um, as traumatic a drought that was for us, it was obviously just as bad for them. And um, they watched their whole, you know, they've been here for th- – you know, 30 years I'd raise kids here. They just watched their whole life basically run away from them in those few days. So that, it hit them really hard, you know, and the the time of the recovery sort of time after that was, you know, recovering the station and cleaning up the station was terribly hard work, hot, as as hot as I can remember being on this station. You know, it was, it was a really, really hard time. Um, financial ruin, you know, was on the agenda um, live export ban. Yeah, the, the live export ban sort of, you know, cattle prices are terrible. It's just a really hard time. Um, financial, you know, stress, banks, you know, at that time giving you a hard time with a lot of uncertainty. Um, so it was really, really, that Lockie was making the, you know, all the big decisions then. And, um, yeah, it was tough, t- really tough time. There's very, very strong people. Everybody banded together, got there in the end, yeah. What was the impact on the landscape? Was there, aside from, you know, roads being washed away, and I'm sure there was erosion caused, but was rain good or that much rain? Did it, did it kill off pastures and hurt your country for a while? There was a lot of vegetation loss because of the dry spell leading up to the flood. Um, but yeah, no, certainly the flood event itself in the areas, um, in the land that the water ran over, it was yes. It was seriously detrimental. wasn't beneficial immediately. wasn't beneficial at all. I don't know. What do you think about like opening up country and? Uh, I can I can remember just being shocked by how little grass actually grew from that event, and the, you know that there's a lot of a lot of the vegetation had died in that really terrible time drought, um, and then the actual shock of. The actual shock of, of that much rain, um, 
you know, and I'm not sure what the technical term for it is, but, but basically just flooding and drowning anything that was, you know. It, or just it, it, dumped it, 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 silt. It, it, we went from the worst drought to the worst flood in 24 hours. So I, I, I look, bird life was non-existent for years after that. Um, you know, uh, you know, animals in general just, you know, you just couldn't find, there wasn't any, it wasn't any native animals. Um, and the vegetation and the, and the, the, uh, and the, and the erosion was just something like old, you know, it was horrible. And, and just how little, how little grew for the month and the months after that. It started, it rained, it kept raining and eventually just bit, bit by bit by bit it, just got better and better and better. Um, but, um, the, the, the one thing I did get out of all that and I've, you know, seen in the years that, that have, in the years that have come is just that that is a natural process. And, and until you, we got our aeroplane back a long time after we bought another aeroplane and you can get in the air and see where that water got to. Um, and the fact that these things do happen. That this isn't the first time this is that flood had happened. It, it happened. It just there didn't happen to be anybody, buddy, buddy living there permanently before. So it's it's um it is a uh, there are natural processes that take place. Um, floodplains do go underwater. Salt is deposited, and the shock of the actual time was terrible. But ten years on, we've never been able to grow more feed on this station yeah. since. Yeah, um, long term. Yeah. Long term, and we're probably only just starting to see it now, with having a really strong year this year, um, and with the the growth around the place. I think uh, the longer term effects of the flood might not be as bad as the immediate effects to the landscape. There were whole land systems that were changed, that were once covered in rocks. They're now covered in river sand. Um, there was a lot of country that was just completely covered with silt. Um, so it wasn't all bad. At the time it looked really bad and it mostly probably was. And like Hamish said, there was not a great response of the perennial vegetation, um, after the, after that flood event. But as time has gone on and those really sharp gullies and pedestals that were left behind by that flood event 10 years ago, all of their edges have become more blunt. Um, and the, the soil has loosened up. And we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing a lot more grass cover now. Would you call this like a one in 100 year event or a one in 500 year event? Oh, we'll Would never you? really know. I don't think I'd, I, I, um, certainly, um, certainly that's a, uh, I'll try not to think of a, I'll try not to think of, um, of the, the flood being a one in 500 year event, but how often do you see, you know, 500 mils of rain in the Gascoigne or the Pilbara um, in a day or two. And, you know, it's it's for it to have fallen over the top of the catchment here. It's probably just like really unlucky. Um, so, I mean, uh, it, it, this, this station's been here for 140 years and it's happened once. Um, and uh, I, I have been, you know, you do see these freak rain events that happen um, you know, there was one in Exmouth a few years ago where they ended up in, you know, with a huge amount of rain in a very, very short space of time. It's just really isolated. You know, I, I, it's impossible to tell. I, I'll, you know, hopefully I'll never get to see it again. Um, but yeah, I, I reckon once every 500 years is probably, I mean, it could be, it could be more or less than that. No, no one really knows, but certainly there's been nothing like it in the last 140 years here. Not, nothing that even got close to that event. And, um, yeah, hopefully it's once in every 500 anyway. I just thought I have to ask because um, all the repairs and rebuilding are sort of where the original buildings were. So you're back on the banks of the river. So, I mean, it may be another two, three, 500 years away, but if and when this does happen again, I just wondered where, where the line of thinking is for rebuilding um, and how that fits in with insurance as well because I learnt – from talking to some of your neighbours that there's a difference. I don't know if this counted with you guys as well, but insurance will cover flooding from the rainfall, but when the river breaks its banks, the damage caused from that isn't covered. Was that the same yeah, there's, situation? There's 
there's water damage from inundation and there's water damage from rising water and you're not insured for rising waters from it. How do you how do you prove to the insurance people how much of the how much like you know say there was a meter in your house from inundation and then the next two meters after that was from rising floodwaters? How do you prove to them? Oh, look, you find out a bit about you don't prove you don't you don't prove much really. Yeah, you find out a fair bit about your insurance company. Then I mean, I think it's pretty fashionable to sort of you know bloody bitch about your insurance company. But um, ours our guys you know were just absolutely amazing, and um, we you know basically there is no such thing as flood insurance really, and. You know, Bidjimai's, I can see the river from here. We're literally on the bank of it to sort of suggest that it was anything other than, um, than the inundation from rising water was, you know, they, 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 um, came to the party and, and insured us, and insured what they could. But yeah, the financial shock of a flood is, um, is nearly, um, you know, it's, it's nearly too much, um, if it was to happen again, well, you know, we, I think we all work on the theory that it's a once in a lifetime thing. But if it was to happen again, um, you're not, you're not really sure that you could like emotionally and financially handle it. Um, but you know, it's 10 years ago now and you like look around here now and we live this wonderful life in this wonderful place and, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, the place wasn't burnt to the ground. Um, it wasn't, we, we, we still live here. So it's a really, really tough one. I, I, I'd hate to not live here. Um, I think you, if you're going to live here, you just have to accept that it's a, 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 a threat and a risk. And yeah, it'd be hard to shift away from this place. It's beautiful. It's, you know, it's one of the nicest places I've ever been to in my life. And, uh, yeah, I, I, but but at the same time, at the same time, if it if it did happen again and it became a once in fifty or a hundred year exercise, I'm not. Sh- yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. We'll just it's a bit of a wait and see. I think this is this will be a this will be something that's documented in time that event and uh, hopefully future generations of whoever lives at Bijamai has to make that decision. Can you can you put up with this once every hundred years? Um. Um. But. I'd, having been through it, I'm not not sure that you can, yeah. I'd like to finish up by asking each of you what, I suppose, to, to look on the bright side, what has been the best thing to come of the flood? Obviously, there were many traumatic and, and horrible things to come from it and, and in, the, in the experience itself, but now that you can look back on it, what's something, whether it's something you've learnt or something that's changed physically, What's something that, yeah, you can be grateful for? Um, well, I guess my silver lining, there's, there's been a few, but my silver lining, the biggest one is probably quite personal. Um, and that is that when I arrived at Bijamaya 11 years ago, um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law had this place like it was in a magazine. It was in the country style magazine. It was absolutely stunning. It was really well respected and, and hardworking people. Um, and I guess I struggled, um, prior to the flood, um, I struggled with understanding how I was going to find my place here, um, and how I was ever going to live up to the expectations of Bijimai and, and try to replicate the job that Jane had done. Um, so although it was devastating to get everything back down to ground zero, um, I guess at times I find myself feeling grateful for the opportunity to be able to build something from scratch um, or not from scratch, but, you know, start, start from the beginning and to do something my own way. Um, and it's taken 10 years and we're probably not there yet, but yeah, to be able to be able to, it's not the Bijimai that it was, but it's still as good in our own way. Um, and yeah, to be able to contribute to the story of this wonderful place that means so much to so many people. Um, I have a quite a sense of pride that I've done it justice. Um, and I'm part of this story in my own right. And a lot of people say to me, I don't want to come back. I could never come back after the flood because I have a vision in my mind of what it was like. 
and that has sort of stuck with me but I'm really I'm really quite content where we are now and and what we've done because it's not the same place it doesn't look the same it doesn't feel the same but it's as good in our way in a way that we've created um and had to do through lots of hard work and and um and really like great times and great people as well but um yeah it was an opportunity to really sit down and have a think about how things needed to change and prioritize and slowly implement that and I think it's been like a part of a growth you know a personal growth and it's like a metaphor for life like if things of of change you know it never has to be exactly the same but so long as it's your version of the best version and I think you know I feel quite content that that's where we're headed I don't know. I, I often think that the flood was a, like, it's obviously a dreadful event, but it was the catalyst for a lot of change, uh, for, for us as a family. Um, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the flood. Um, so, um, I don't know. It was sort of, it was a blank canvas. It was a blank, great big blank canvas covered in silt, um, which was really difficult. And uh, and taxing financially, emotionally, all of the things that we've spoken about. But it was also an opportunity to do something um, to start from scratch, and then put some really hard work in, and blood, sweat, and tears. And I think good things always come from from building something from the ground up. And it's given us a huge me, especially because I haven't lived here my whole life. I've lived here for ten years, and I'm. Um, I feel privileged to have been a part of building, a part of this building, of this great place. Um, I wouldn't have, I still would have loved to just swan in and be the lady of the house. Don't get me wrong, but, um, but I, I'm, I carry a fair bit of pride in the work that, the genuine work that we put in at the beginning. And, um, and I've actually had a hand in, in building this place and this story, which will go on for years. Um, so that for me, has been a positive to come out of the flood, apart from the um, the wonderful community spirit and um, and lifelong friends and and relationships that have formed and and um, carried on since since those terrible months um, after the flood. Yeah, mm, I don't really have so much to add to that, really. But I reckon um, I I'd be. You know, apart from like real terrible tragedies where people die, um, you know, close family members die or whatever, which luckily I've never had much to do with that. But once you've been through something like that, there's not, I don't really reckon there's much, there's not really much, if you can survive something like that and it doesn't break you, I reckon there's not so much else that scares you. Um, and just the sense of family. So, you know, if you had to do it on your own, you'd be buggered. But yeah, the the stress of that that event, the the year or two lady before it, the years after it, financial, you know, losing, you know, losing this station was on the cards for a fair while. You know, um, to sort of bond to to band together and stay cool and just see it off. You know, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing feeling. You, um, you know, and once you've been through something like that, I think things worry you, but pretty, pretty amazing time to come out the other side of it. And, and, um, once you've been through something like that, I don't, I don't really, yeah, it's just, it's a unique experience that not very many people have. And, uh, and many didn't. When I say survive it, they actually survived it with their life, but. You know, they're not, they're not here today. They're not in the district because of that flood event. And so, you know, it's a, um, yeah, it's, it's just, that's just living in the bush. That's just like, there's thousands of stories. Like, it's not that unique. There's thousands of people, um, have do it across Australia pretty well every year. Queensland, you know, there was floods in Queensland at the same, that same year, Toowoomba. And then those huge floods that went through all of, the eastern seaboard basically and there's just thousands of stories just like it we're not unique like that but um yeah it's just it's a yeah that's just living in the bush isn't it it's just buddy yeah you never um 
it's it's certainly not boring. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.